Welcome to LifeSide B. I'm your host, Shubham Chatterjee. For today's podcast, I'm so excited to share my chat with James Mutamba, Chief Business Officer at Arrakis Therapeutics. Arrakis Therapeutics is a biotech developing RNA-targeted small molecules. They combine insights into RNA structure, chemistry, and biology to pioneer a new class of medicines focused on oncology and genetically validated diseases. James, as CBO, leads corporate strategy, business development, investor relations, and finance. Prior to Arrakis, James was the VP of Business Development at Pixis Oncology, leading their transactions, Series B, and IPO. Prior to that, James was a principal in the Longwood Fund and senior associate at Pure Tech Health, where he led both investments and company creation. James received his BS in biochemistry from University of North Carolina and his PhD from MIT in bioengineering. We discussed company creation, IPOing a biotech, and how to run the BD deal-making process. So please join me and James on LifeSide Beat. James, welcome to LifeSide Beat. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a delight to be here, Shabon. To start us off, we begin with a question that we like to ask many of our guests just to get the conversation going. What did you want to be when you were growing up, James? And how did that lead you to where you are today? Like many kids, I started wanting to be maybe a ninja or... You know, um, at some point after watching Jurassic Park, I wanted to be an archaeologist. But having grown up in Zimbabwe, they were really one of maybe two or three professions. It was either going to be medicine, law, or if you wanted to be creative, maybe engineering. I was really interested in life sciences and good at life sciences. And so I was really put on this pre-med track earlier in life. I ended up going to college at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, where I was a pre-med in biochemistry. And during my time there, got exposed to the area of technology translation and innovation from a great sort of mentor of mine there. And, you know, once that bug bit me, I just never looked back and that put me on a track to be at this intersection of science and business and building companies. That's really interesting. And you mentioned how you were at that intersection of science and business. And it seems like some of the most formative experiences that you've had during your career started at Pure Tech and Longwood Fund, where you spent significant time at both of those places, really focusing on company creation and founding companies through the lens of venture capital-backed business. And I'm curious, when you think about those experiences writ large, what were some of the biggest learnings during your experience of company creation? Yeah, so both of those organizations are great organizations and sort of gave me the technical skills and sort of understanding of what it is to build companies in the life sciences space. At both of those organizations, I learned a lot. At PureTech, it was really about learning how to evaluate early stage and academic technologies and creatively finding oftentimes a non-obvious path. And then on top of that, at Longwood, what I was then able to take from that experience is couple that evaluation of technologies to understanding where the market's going, what market trends look like, and finding ways of turning those early scientific ideas into products in a way that's consistent with what the market is demanding and making sure that the timing there is really right. And ultimately, that was one of the key lessons from my Longwood experience that, you know, timing can be very important and that being early is almost equivalent to to being wrong, especially when it comes to trying to get these companies financed. So you really have to both figure out what you want to do with the technology, the best path for it forward, but also 
just be aware of the external environment as that relates to bringing on financing, being able to recruit people and really build a successful company. That's really interesting. So when you say timing, you mean not only from an external perspective of investor appetite, but I'm guessing also internally, whether the science writ large in that area has progressed enough. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you don't necessarily want to be the only person in the world who thinks something is going to work. It's often an advantage to be one of only a few people, right, that knows something is going to work or believe something is going to work. But then you also have to quickly be in a position to start convincing the external world. And I think those things have to go hand in hand if you're going to be able to launch a company. Gotcha. And I guess, how do you then balance that, as you mentioned, with being one of the few people in a given space and still seeing something and seeing where the puck is going before others have? I guess the question is, are there either signals that you look for in the literature or in the science or particular proof points which make you maybe scratch your chin, but at the same time realize that there's a there there that could be pursued? An illustrative example of this would be how at PureTech, we thought about the lymphatic space, right? The lymphatic system was really understudied and not really well understood, but is important in doing various things like trafficking, dietary fat. And so we posited that if indeed lymphatics are important for you know trafficking dietary fat, you could essentially piggyback on that system by making drugs, for example, look like dietary fat and get them to be taken up lymphatically and get them trafficked to interesting places. So the question then you ask yourself is, all right, if this hypothesis is true, what is the data that I would have to generate or find to convince myself that this is in fact happening? And, and essentially, that's the exercise you then go on, right? You go out into the world and try and find scientists and folks who are working in the space who might have data to support that thesis, or you generate that data yourself. And in fact, PureTech, I would argue, was one of the pioneers of coming up with the hypothesis, going into the lab, testing this out and, and proving it out. And in the case of this lymphatic you know, technology, we found a great investigator and scientist who was in fact doing this work and had shown that you were indeed able to do this and, and modify drugs and get them taken up orally and into the lymphatic system. Some of the products from that underlying work are now in phase two um, clinical studies right now. Got it. It's super interesting, as you mentioned, to be able to think about a hypothesis where things are understudied or maybe underappreciated, but then finding a principal investigator or finding some body of work to build on where there's enough progress being made so that you have some scientific proof points. That's what right. I find interesting about that process is it doesn't seem too dissimilar from very early stage biotech operations and building a company from that lens. But what I do know from your own experience that you then moved from Longwood Fund into the world of more biotech operations. From an outsider's perspective, those two seem somewhat similar to me, but I'm sure there's massive differences between the two. So from your own experience, what motivated that transition? And then what are some of the fundamental differences you found between VC-backed company creation versus maybe more early stage biotech operating roles when you're in the company, so to speak, full-time? Part of it is being able to balance multiple considerations, right? So on the venture side, it's very much about here are the milestones, here's how you drive value, here's how you're going to be able to make a return to your LPs. As an operator, you have still the same considerations, but they become uniquely pragmatic, right? You have people who you have to mentor and guide and bring along. 
you have roadblocks and challenges you're going to run into and how do you think ahead and you know try and mitigate against those future risks not to say that the venture folks aren't doing this but when you're living breathing and doing something on a day to day it's really different to you know maybe being a portfolio company that you're overseeing over a length of of time so it's a lot more hands on the considerations are greater dynamic it's a lot more complex but it's also again really rewarding to work with a really talented group of folks to help do something challenging Got it. It's super interesting to hear when you move from more of an investor lens to that operator lens. It seems almost that with the skin in the game, you get that dynamics, but you also get the the pragmatism in terms of moving forward with any kind of plan and making sure you actually hit what you need to hit. And what's interesting during your time at Pixis Oncology, as you mentioned, when you were the VP of business and corporate development there, you actually helped Pixis IPO. I think this is an aspect of biotech commercialization that we actually haven't touched much upon during this podcast. So I'd love to dig there a bit further. What are just some of the high-level steps involved to IPO a biotech? First and foremost, an IPO is really a financing event for the company, right? As I'm sure most of your listeners will be aware, it takes billions of dollars to go from ideation to getting a drug approved you have to have a path to access uh, deeper pockets and an IPO allows you to do that by tapping public investors. So if you're pursuing a traditional IPO, as you might imagine, this is a highly regulated process. And so it's going to be driven and guided mostly by your bankers and lawyers who do this day in, day out. You know, most people, if they're lucky, will get to see one or two, or maybe three highly successful people, maybe six or seven IPOs, but the folks who do this for a living are doing these, you know, on a weekly basis. And so it behooves you to tap into that expertise. But, you know, beyond that, what you are doing as a company is really figuring out what's most interesting or differentiated about your product or your company and finding a way of telling that story as clearly as possible to potential investors who might be interested. And also, you know, giving yourself that clarity because it gives you a direction to go and it helps you in recruiting. It's just a way of really crystallizing what your core thesis and your sort of key differentiators are. Got it. So it sounds like there's a massive storytelling component in terms of making sure that the narrative behind the biotech is clear. And with it comes organizing a lot of your data and maybe experimental readouts to show the proof points. And then there's also, I'm guessing, an organizational component of making sure that you as an organization are ready to, to move from the private to the public space. That's but exactly both right. of those elements seem not dissimilar to a typical private financing round, whether that be early stage Series A or even you know later stage Series C, Series D. So what are some of the fundamental differences, do you think, between that late stage financing that's private versus actually going to the public markets? Yeah, a lot of it, again, comes down to, you know, the IPO being a regulated process. So there's all sorts of SEC requirements that you have to adhere to, what you can say publicly prior to the IPO versus not, all sorts of requirements around your board structure, for example, post-IPO. And so I would say the primary difference is really one of a regulatory dimension. Got it. And what does the timeline look like if, let's say, you as a company decide that the next step financing wise is to have an IPO around? What's typically the overall arc to go on that journey and split up in terms of, I don't know, one or two key buckets? 
Yeah, it, it can be variable, and there's lots of dimensions to this. First and foremost, whether there's an open IPO window, right, that you're trying to hit. But then beyond that, it's how you're able to pull together all the documents you need to be able to make a submission to the SEC, what comments they have, the back and forth you have there. In general, I'd say six to maybe nine months. But again, it's highly variable, just depending on the specifics of the company and what's happening in the external environment. Uh, one thing that I'm curious about, if you take a step back, anything that might have been most surprising or most eye-opening about the IPO process, now that you've gone through it, that you might not have expected before? Yeah, a couple of things. So the first is maybe just how time-consuming it can be. So not only are you prepping all these materials for submission to regulatory agencies, but you are essentially on the road for most of that, on the road in quotation marks. Um, we took a company public during COVID and that was mostly via Zoom calls, but you're effectively talking to investors and other folks on a day-to-day -day basis. And in fact, in the era of Zoom, you're able to start your day at six or seven, but then you're talking to investors sometimes till nine or 10 at night because you're now talking to the, the Asian investors. And it takes a lot of time and it actually takes you away from the day-to-day -day sort of running of the business, right? And so the way we res resolved that issue was really essentially having one team manage the IPO process and another team manage the day-to-day -day running of the company. The surprising thing is, one, the amount of time it takes, but two, the requirement that you have a really, again, strong team that's able to divide and conquer. We were able to you know, bring on board a really experienced group of folks who gave investors comfort, but also folks who could make sure that the program stayed on time and that we continued to hit our milestones. And so that element of it was sort of surprising. The other thing perhaps that I found a little interesting was just the level of weight that's put on that initial team, right? And this is not something you think a lot about necessarily when you're just starting, you know, comparing early stage venture to a company that's IPOing. In the early days, it's really about who can get the job done. How do you accelerate the work you're trying to do? But start to approach public markets, it really becomes about who are the experienced folks with credibility who can give your public investors a lot of comfort, folks who've done this before, folks who maybe people have worked with prior. All those become incredibly important determinants. And again, this maybe sounds a little trite, but it's all about the team, right? And that's super important. When you think about IPOing as a financing event over the course of a biotech life cycle, have there been any other key takeaways for this experience as you think about the move for private to public markets in this biotech industry? One of my observations has been that every company is really different, right? And there's a set of attributes with each company that enables you to finance these companies and move them forward in different ways. So in the case of Pixis, I think the IPO made a lot of sense. The external environment was telling us that ADCs were starting to get clinical data supporting that they would work. And so that enabled us to develop a lot of interest and excitement from investors. In contrast with the Arrakis, we're at the forefront of a new area of medicine, which is targeting RNA with small molecules. You know, there isn't an external environment that's telling folks, oh, this is working, right? Because we're literally at the bleeding edge of it. But that said, there are folks 
other stakeholders in the ecosystem who see the value. And in the case of Arrakis, that's the big pharma groups. And we've been able to raise a significant amount of money from partners who are interested in our platform's potential to open up new target space. I think taking a step back, my realization is that depending on the company concept, what's happening externally versus internally, all these companies have different paths that you might pursue. And my role is to help find paths for these companies that enable them to get financed and, you know, hopefully one day get products to patients. That's a really interesting answer. And I love the fact that we brought the conversation now to Arrakis. So for our listeners who may not know, you're now, you know, the chief business officer of Arrakis Therapeutics. At a high level, you mentioned already that it targets RNA using small molecules. Could you provide a bit of an overview of the Arrakis Therapeutics platform, as well as what motivated the transition from Pixis to Arrakis? Sure. You know, maybe taking a step back, you might remember from your high school biology that DNA makes RNA, makes protein. And the vast majority of small molecule drugs that you would, for example, take orally, all go after the protein. So we have about 500 approved drugs that address proteins. But there's you know 20,000 protein targets that are yet to be addressed by merely going upstream from the protein to the RNA that opens up that entire target space. And so you might ask, why would you ever want to do that? Well, there's a number of protein targets where you can't actually use a small molecule going after the protein because these are non-enzymatic proteins, things like transcription factors, for example, or maybe even structural proteins where there isn't a good way of docking a molecule to a really large protein. But if you go upstream to RNA, you're able to actually find structures that make those targets tractable. And interestingly, if you design this platform correctly and optimally, you're actually able to get the same level of, say, genetic specificity that you would as, say, using an sRNA. So if you're successful, you ultimately have a small molecule drug that you could take orally, but that delivers the precision therapeutically of a genetic medicine like sRNA. And that's the promise of Arrakis. And we've built a platform that essentially does that. We're able to, given any target in any cell, use a small molecule to go after that RNA. And to do that, we've essentially built a platform that goes from nomination of targets, designing synthetic RNAs that replicate the structure of these RNAs and cells, being able to do screens, and then using traditional drug development and medicinal chemistry tools to actually move those uh, assets forward. We've built the platform to be able to do this in one of three ways right now, where we're basically using three different modalities. There's what we call intrinsics, where by virtue of the small, small molecule binding the RNA, there's a confirmational change in that RNA that allows you to, for example, change splicing. We also have what we call extrinsic approaches, which on the one hand, we have targeted RNA degradation. It's a heterobifunctional molecule that on one end is binding to the RNA, but on the other end is recruiting some host cell function to degrade or otherwise impede that RNA. And then we've also started working on targeted covalent RNA inhibitors, where upon binding to an RNA, that small molecule actually covalently modifies the RNA and might, for example, be a block to a ribosome that's trying to translate off of that message. So all in all, we have a platform that, again, given any target in any cell, 
we're able to use one of these three modalities to essentially take that target out of commission. And this, again, enables us to go after targets that have proven themselves intractable for traditional small molecules. That's an incredibly fascinating platform. I love the fact that there's so much flexibility involved, both in terms of the ways you can get at targets and expanding the scope of those targets, but then using what could be considered more conventional approaches, so to speak, in terms of small molecule and medicinal chemistry to go after those with assets you can have high confidence in, which I think is a really potent combination. Could you share a bit more on what was the motivation for the transition between Pixis to Arrakis? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first thing was that RNA has been experiencing this explosion in biology and relevance, right? Most of your listeners would be familiar with RNA from the COVID vaccines, and their RNA is really serving as the drug. That was one factor, just RNA was sort of reaching that inflection point. It's becoming an interesting space. But then on top of that, we've had, again, an explosion of tools and methods that we could make RNA tractable as a target. And when I looked at you know some of the things that Arrakis was doing and taking a really broad approach to the problem of drugging RNA, that tickled my, my interest. And then the third piece was just the team that had assembled around Arrakis. It's a really talented group of leaders, folks who've solved other really challenging problems. And as I looked at both what was happening in RNA the tools that were coming online to address RNA and the team that had been put around the table, the conclusion I came to was, yes, this is a challenging problem, but if there's a team that's going to be able to solve this, it's this team. And I really just wanted to be a, a part of that. Got it. I mean, it sounds like it's on, as you mentioned at the very beginning, right at the bleeding edge. And so it's an incredibly powerful platform. And I'm sure a ton of exciting science is going to come from it. And part of that exciting science is having others validate and see the potential of it. And one thing I wanted to speak more about is the Arrakis collaboration with different pharma companies like Amgen. And you spoke on the Timmerman Report a little bit about this. And we've had some guests also on this podcast speak to some of the strategy behind BD dealmaking. For example, the fact that it's non-dilutive financing versus a trade-off you have in giving a product value. But one thing we haven't really touched on here is the mechanics of a deal, so to speak. And I'm particularly interested in your take here, since you mentioned on the Timmerman Report about how the whole Amgen negotiation, as an example, and the deal that came from it was done in almost a month or two. So could you discuss a bit around how that deal came together and then some of the details about how you quarterbacked the whole process in that tight timeline? Sure. So the inception of this deal came from a discussion that our CEO, Michael Gilman, had with Ray Deshaies. And they met at a conference and started talking about Ray's interest in proximity-mediated drugs and whether our platform could be used against RNA in that fashion. And from that discussion, I think it became clear that there was mutual interest in exploring what we might do together and, quite frankly, quite complementary skill sets. So on the one hand, we could bring the RNA targeting small molecule piece and Amgen could, on their side, bring together bait molecules to pull in these RNA effectors. The critical thing for getting the deal negotiated was really earnestly understanding what they wanted, contrasting that against some of our interests, and then finding a path to get there. And 
just from like a tactical deal dynamics perspective, there was clearly a lot of sort of formal discussions back and forth. But ultimately, what enables you to go that fast is folks on the team building a level of trust with each other that we can have informal discussions, right? So when you get a term sheet back from the other side, kind of scratch your head as to why a certain term has been changed or what's going on. It was great for me to be able to pick up the phone with my counterpart on the other side and just say, hey, what is it you guys are trying to solve for? And he would tell me and I'd be like, oh, would it be okay if we did this instead? And in the next turn, we just make sure that we address that issue. And and I think ultimately building that level of trust and an understanding of what the other party needs is ultimately what enables you to move these deals and, and get them done quickly. Being structured certainly helps. So we had a schedule where we would have a morning debrief with our team looking at the last turn of the documents that we got from our Amgen colleagues. We would put a little working group together to understand what the issues were. There was sort of a business team looking at the documents as well as our project management team and our scientific team looking at these documents. We would then align what we had learned from our respective camps and then put a document together back to return to our Amgen colleagues with the intention of reviewing that later that evening and then iterating with the same dynamics the following day. And so a lot of it is just, quite frankly, herding cats and making sure that the right people are talking. But you have to be able to do this at a cadence and build yourself the same sort of internal elbow room from a scheduling perspective to enable all of this to, to happen. Well, it's crazy to hear about the daily iterations over the course of a month. I mean, that's working at an incredible speed. And I think it's one of those experiences, I'm guessing, where you have a parallel team working on the deal and then a parallel team trying to make sure that the biotech continues progressing on the science and getting all the experiments done. I guess taking a step back with the deal sheet that you have at this point, what have you learned about BD and the process of deal making? You know, every interaction, every deal is, again, different, and it really just comes down to, as I mentioned before, sounds really trite, but figuring out what the other party really truly wants, putting yourself in their shoes, and then figuring out a path that works for for both groups. In particular, with the Amgen deal, for example, the fact that we had really senior level of buy-in across both organizations was helpful because then you felt everyone was sort of rowing in the same direction, right? And so getting senior level buy-in at at both organizations with a rubric and a plan for moving the deal forward quickly on the more tactical side, I think is super helpful. And that enables you to escalate issues relatively quickly when you need to and get those resolved. Globally speaking, I would say this is true for most of the deals that I've been on, right? The specifics might vary this way or that. The technology might be different this way or that. But ultimately, it's people trying to drive towards some some end goal. And you know, you have to kind of relate to people as people. Yeah, I love that uh, pragmatic take at the end, because as much as biotech is about the science, as you mentioned, it's about the people as well, almost in every aspect of running a company and, and bringing medicines to market. One thing that I'd love to just wrap the conversation on Arrakis with is the space of RNA as a target and going after that particular modality. As you mentioned, Arrakis is right on the bleeding edge, but if we think about the RNA targeting space writ large, we've actually seen more and more companies entering it recently with computational approaches or even in vivo RNA editing approaches. 
Do you view this as a positive sign of things to come or worries about an increasingly competitive space? No, I think this is great. As I mentioned at the top of my discussion here, you don't want to be the only person right, on some island that no one really cares about and everyone thinks you're crazy. And I will say, I think people thought Arrakis was crazy when we started. I was one of those people who thought what Arrakis was doing was pretty crazy until I looked under the hood and learned a little bit more. But to the extent that other folks are pushing in this direction, I think that's actually beneficial for the space in general. But it's also really challenging, right? And so to the extent that we work together in often orthogonal or in some cases complementary ways to help address those challenges, I think it's helpful to everyone. So it's taken us like five years to get Arrakis to where it is today. We've made remarkable progress, but challenges abound when you're in any new space. And I, you know, I welcome other folks coming in and, and helping us figure this out. So I view it as a, a positive thing. Yeah, I like the point around timing, as you mentioned. You want to make sure that there's a there there, but at the same time, have a differentiated approach to separate yourself from the pack. So I can understand how there's a fine balance thinking about that. Thank you so much for your time and insights here. Going beyond the nuts and bolts of biotech just for a second, I do want to touch upon a topic that's important to LifeSci Beat. Speaking plainly here, there isn't a lot of diversity in biotech, however you might want to define that term. A recent Forbes article referenced, for example, that African-Americans represent only 6% of the workforce, people of color more broadly, only 25% or less of executive teams. To the extent that you know, you're willing to share, what's been your experience in this regard and how can we all do better to address this issue? Yeah, so speaking as a Black man from uh, Zimbabwe, I will also uh, concede the point that there aren't very many Black people in senior leadership positions in biotech. And, you know, I think this is changing slowly, but we're making slow and steady progress. At, at Arrakis, in particular, we strive to increase diversity along a number of different axes, whether it's race, gender, or otherwise. And we see this as being important to our success but also important with respect to serving the patients who we hopefully one day to address with, with our drugs. For me, you know, racial diversity is primarily a, a question of health equity, right? And so just as I described with the Arrakis, it being important who our drugs end up getting to, for me, it's a question of who actually gets access to these life-saving drugs, right? It's one of the key reasons I came to Arrakis, the fact that you can develop an orally bioavailable small molecule that can be put on trucks and distributed all over the world and can sit on shelves. That to me is extremely appealing and helps address this health equity question, but it goes beyond that. How do you actually get to achieve that vision? It's who's the senior leadership in these organizations, who's deciding what indications are being developed. It's who's in the boardroom. It's also where you choose to do your clinical studies and who's enrolled in those studies. It's who you recruit into your organization, who you retain and who rise through the ranks of these organizations. And so I think it's a much broader issue, but you know, my personal take, and this is something that I've come to somewhat recently, is that when you look at that challenge of diversity in any given space, it can seem overwhelming and your ability to change any of that seems really difficult. But ultimately, it's about individuals making oftentimes small decisions to do things, whether it's 
choosing to mentor someone or choosing to go to a specific conference and just the idea of being seen as a minority in a space where there aren't very many people who look or think like you. I think that's all really valuable and we can all play a, a part in that. Yeah, thank you so much for that perspective. I like the point around one, how it has to flow through all levels of decision-making from the boardroom down to who you recruit in trials and the fact that small actions can have big consequences over time, uh, which is something that I think is both hopeful and a really nice way to actually translate a lot of our vision into you know the decisions we take each and every day. So thank you so much for that. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't ask advice from someone in your position. And to that end, what advice would you have for, you know, young, aspiring bio entrepreneurs? Yeah, I imagine this is also similarly going to sound pretty trite and you hear this all the time. But what I found worked for me is basically diving into the things you want to do most. Don't feel like you have to go by some prescribed path to pick up these skills. Just dive into what you're looking to do, learn as much as you can along the way. Things might not work out, but those lessons become invaluable to you and you can leverage them in whatever you choose to do going forward. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. That's certainly something I'll take to heart and uh, hopefully we can all start pursuing our passions and our dreams and ultimately changing the world from there. So I appreciate the time and the perspectives. Thank you so much, James. Uh, really appreciate you having on. Thanks, Shubham. Thanks for having me. 